Okay, we're going to go to Galatians chapter 3. I'm taking mental note of everyone who's here tonight. The sacrifice you've made. There's people saying, what's that? What are you talking about? Yeah. You don't know what, see? Before we get started tonight, as some of you know, it was, it was pretty early notice on Sunday. We announced that our brother Jack Rickard has been received into his heavenly glorious home. And there was only a couple hours notice for the visitation, but there is going to be a memorial service for Jack on Tuesday, June 6th. That's D-Day, which is typical of Jack. And that's 2 p.m. And it's Grace Methodist Church in Church Street, Indiana, PA. And I'll be officiating at that. He's made some requests that I'm kind of afraid of what they're going to be. I know there's one thing, the, the yakety sax. Does anybody know what that is? It's some kind of music he wants to have played. Well, thanks, Jack. We'll see you soon. I'll be talking to you. <laughs> All right. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. The subject, and I've had this cooking for a little while, and it's but on the back burner in my study. It's called The Apocalypse of Faith. The Apocalypse of Faith. And we're going to move forward a little bit in Galatians, and as has been the recent standard operating procedure, that may mean that we'll go back over some of this territory. And I'm thinking perhaps a lot of our work in Romans and Galatians is setting up some kind of a scaffolding or some kind of preparation for a future more in-depth study of those two epistles. But we'll see how that comes out as we progress and see how the Holy Spirit leads us, and he is. He's a perfect leader. We're not always perfect followers. And that goes for us preachers and teachers and theologians and scholars and all the rest of it. So that's why we have to keep moving. A few moments of silent prayer. Silent preparation. Father, we pray that you'll comfort Martha and continue to comfort her and give her grace in her new position as a widow. And she's bearing up well, but we ask that you'll grant her comfort. We pray that you'll also grant comfort, consolation, and a sense of your unrestricted love to those who are going through particularly deep testing and trial, perhaps having suffered loss. And we always want to be mindful of those who are weeping. We also thank you for those who are rejoicing, who have been recently blessed in many different ways. With them, we rejoice too. Thank you for this opportunity. Open our eyes now to behold wonderful things out of your word, the sum total of which is your son, whom we behold in a mirror and are changed into that image from one degree of glory to the next. With that confidence, we approach your throne of grace and give you thanks. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Now before this, faith, and that's... Again, our famous phrase that we seem to see repeating itself throughout both Romans and Galatians, ek pistios, ek pistios. Now, before this faith came, and now we're going to see that this faith that he's talking about came when Christ came. So it is his faithfulness. It is not our faith. Faith is said to have come. It's a faithfulness that has come. It has entered into human history. And we're going to see that the coming of faith is the same as the coming of Christ. And therefore, it is the coming of his faithfulness. I have a kind of a sneaking suspicion that there's a correlation working here 
in John's gospel, for in John 1.17 it says, The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, or grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That's the same as saying when Christ came, faithfulness came. The covenant fidelity of God demonstrated in Christ. I also have a sneaking suspicion that a translation of Romans 117 may look something like this. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, which is what he has done in Christ, as we know from Psalm 2231, the righteousness of God is being apocalyptically revealed from faith to faith that that means from God's faithfulness continuing in Christ to Christ's faithfulness continuing in us. That's in the church at first as the proto or the proleptic people and then finally in all of humanity. So he says, now before this faith came, and we'll see that it came with Christ, so it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, We were held in custody under the law. Now, this sounds like the so-called salvation history theory of soteriology, that there was an unfolding of salvation through history, but this is not what he's talking about. He's talking about a monolithic view of all of humankind, once in Adam and under the law, as the law was taken in hand and hijacked by sin and the flesh and the elements of this world, And the whole same whole humanity being liberated in Christ. And so it's not a, in my view, it's not a salvation history view. We have the justification by faith view. And then we had what is called a new perspective, which is called a salvation history view. And I don't, I reject both of those essentially for a view that goes beyond both of those perspectives. And I think it's a, I think it's one that's opening itself up now as a flower blooms. So now before this faith came, we were held in custody under the law that we is universally all of humankind. Imprisoned until the apocalypse of the coming faithfulness. Imprisoned. That's our carceral metaphor that came up again in Galatians 3.22. God has imprisoned everything or everybody under sin that he might have in Romans 11.32, mercy upon all, as we know. We were held in custody under the law. This is a carceral metaphor. This isn't just about, as we're going to see in verse 24, this is just about a, a tutor or a teacher that takes you to school Every day. This is about a custodian, a guard, a prison guard that holds us in a confinement. And us, by us, is the whole human race. So, again, my translation without comment. Now, before this faith came, we were held in custody under the law, imprisoned until the apocalypse of the coming faithfulness. So the law held all of humanity in custody until the revelation or the apocalypse of the faithfulness of the coming one. He's called the coming one. We studied that in John's gospel. In John 1, 9, the word, the logos, the word was with God. The word was God and it was, he was about to come into the world. He enlightens every man and he's about to come into the world. And he did come into the world, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. John 6.14 speaks of him as the coming one, the anticipated one. Martha's great theological confession, speaking of Martha, she said, you are the coming one. She indicated that she, could Jesus Christ be the coming one? And again, in John 12.46, Jesus seems to answer all these by saying, I have come. The coming one has come. The faithfulness that has come to free us from being under the custody to the law has come. It's come when Christ came. The faith then that has come is envelops all of the advent of Christ, his incarnation, his life, which is lived in vicarious obedience for the human race, 
as the representative of all humankind, obedience which extended itself to the point of death by crucifixion, and that event also includes his burial, and three days and three nights in the grave, followed by resurrection, elevation, and exaltation, and enthronement. Those are all the elements of the faithfulness of Christ coming. All of those are one saving event, and it's the same as the coming of faith. So the point I want you to see so far is the coming of faith is the coming of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which came with Jesus Christ in the Christ event. So the coming of faith that he's speaking of here is equal to exactly the same as the coming of Christ. The law then held all of humanity in custody until the revelation of the faithfulness of the coming one. The coming one and the coming faithfulness are coetaneous. That's a word I used to use. It's, it's kind of a, a word that's kind of out there, but I want you to understand it because it's important for our development of the word. That's C-O-E-T-A-N-E-O-U-S, coetaneous which means it concurrently occurs with something. It occurs during the same time frame, during the same moment as something else. And so the coming, uh, the coming one, as he's called, and the, com- the coming faithfulness are coetaneous events. They are coetaneous. The coming of faithfulness and the coming of Christ are one event. By this is meant that the apocalypse of the liberating faithfulness and the revelation of Jesus Christ, the liberator, are one and the same event. I'll say that again because these things bear repetition because they're sentences that may have not been spoken before, at least not by me. By this is meant that the apocalypse of the liberating faithfulness and the revelation of Jesus Christ, the liberator, are one and the same event. The coming faithfulness that he talks about, of course, is a faithfulness that has come. The coming faithfulness is the coming about of the Christ event. His incarnation and the days of his flesh, says Hebrews 5, 7, it calls it the days of his flesh, in which he climaxed that event on earth, the days of his flesh, with great, strong, crying and tears and was heard because he was obedient to the father. And so the days of his flesh are just as important as any other element of the Christ event, including the incarnation itself. The incarnation was followed by a life of representative obedience by Jesus Christ to God, the father for us. And by us, it's a double entendre us and us universal salvation. So the coming faithfulness is the coming about of the Christ event, his incarnation and the days of his flesh in which he expressed obedience, Hebrews 5, 8, though he was the son, though he was the only begotten of the father, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He demonstrated obedience through his passion, through his death, to the extent of death. Put Hebrews 5, 8 Next to Philippians 2.8, and you have what I call an explosive correlation, which could mean an insight. So then, this is, I'm going slow to develop this doctrine. That includes his obedience, and by that obedience, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That is, in Hebrews 5, 9, with the obedience of faith, which is an obedience to which all the nations are destined to come. That was Paul's goal in Romans 1, 5. It is demonstrated in passages like Psalm twenty two twenty seven, And Psalm twenty two twenty seven incidentally, is a verse that you should recall. In fact, 27 to 31 to the end of that passage, because especially at the end, at least in the Christian standard Bible, it says that a generation yet unborn will hear of his righteousness. That is what he has done. 
if we interpret God's righteousness as what he has done, as Psalm 22:31 says we should, if we interpret that righteousness as what God has done in Christ salvifically, then we have the beginning of the interpretation of the epistle of Paul to the Romans, because that's the key word, dikaiosune. It's used quite a few times. I don't know exactly the count on that, but quite a few times in Romans. When it refers specifically to the righteousness of God, it is what he has done. Not just an attribute of his essence. God's essence is love. The act of God's essence is love. The essence of God's existence is love. But the act of God in Christ is called righteousness. The righteous act, the saving act of God. What Paul is all about is a saving apocalypse of the righteousness of God. It's an apocalypse of the saving righteousness of God in Christ Jesus for all mankind and for all creation, for that matter. We're getting to the heart of the matter. We're getting to the heart of the matter. The Christ event includes then his obedience, an obedience to which all the nations will be brought, his passion unto death and the accomplishment of obedience, his resurrection then, To life and exaltation, the resurrection was the father's receipt of payment for the son's obedience, his demonstration of the son's obedience, and his acceptance of it for all mankind. His resurrection to life and his exaltation to God's right hand. All of this is the coming of, or the we could say, the debut of faithfulness. It came with Jesus Christ. So it's not your faith. It's Christ's faithfulness which when it came, it released us from the confining custodial law, which had been taken in hand by sin. And so the law, the Torah, was one of those enslaving elements from which we have been freed. So this, and again, I'm using a word, and I have to coin certain words in order to develop doctrine. This coetaneity, coetaneity, not even sure that's a word. If it isn't, it is now. C-O-E-T-A-N-E-I-T-Y. Kind of like simultaneity. But coetaneity is better than simultaneity because simultaneity can be something that happens in an instant along with something else that happens in the same instant, whereas coetaneity means something that's happening for an extended period of time. The coming of faithfulness is coetaneous with the coming of Christ into history and the Christ event, which has the elements of incarnation, a life of vicarious obedience lived in representing all humankind before God the Father, a obedience that culminated in the cross or his obedience to death of the cross, burial, resurrection, that's five, elevation, that's six, and enthronement, that's seven. Seven elements of the Christ event. And that's the same as the coming of faith. The very coming of Christ was the liberation of the human race. The very death of Christ was the acquittal of the human race. It's the judgment of the world. And the, depos- the deposing of the prince of this world. All of that occurred in the coming of Christ. Now... So this coetaneity is disclosed elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, Hebrews ten thirty-seven to 38, I counsel you to read that on your own. But the writer quotes Habakkuk 2, 3 there. And, of course, Paul's thesis verse for Romans is Habakkuk 2, 4. But he quotes, and the Hebrew writer quotes Habakkuk 2, 3 in tandem with 2, 4. Habakkuk 2.3 in Hebrews 10.37 records the prophetic advent of the coming one. The coming one will come and he will not delay. That coming one is the same as the righteous one. My righteous one will live by his faithfulness. He will live in resurrection because of his faithful obedience to the extent of death. My righteous one. My faithful one as he's called elsewhere, my righteous one, the coming one. So Hebrews 2, 3, 
or Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4 in Hebrews 10, 37, and 38 records the prophetic event of the coming one, that is, of his coming without delay. And Habakkuk 2, 4 records the prophetic advent of the righteous one. Now listen carefully because this will give you a sense of what prophecy should be and how it should be interpreted and from what perspective eschatology should be interpreted. Both of these predictive prophecies had been fulfilled at the time of the writing of Hebrews. Both of these prophecies had been fulfilled at the time of the writing. So the pastoral author of Hebrews challenges his readers by telling them that they are of the company of the righteous one. You belong to the coming one who has come, Jesus Christ. You belong to the righteous one whose faithfulness has benefited you. So you are not to be as those who draw back into perdition as if the law is still something to be followed. You are those who persist to the saving of your soul. That's what we are, Hebrews 10.39. We are those who persevere to the salvation of the soul in time. In that case, in the Hebrews case, it was actually the salvation of their lives because A.D. 70 was in immediate view there. So both of these predictive prophecies, Habakkuk 2.3, the coming one, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous one, had been fulfilled at the time of the writing. As Jesus said in John 12.46, I have come. Yes, I'm the coming one, the one about to come into the world, and I have come. I have come. That's the advent that I look forward to by looking backward at. That's a, do, that's a new perspective. I'll say that again. That's the advent I look forward to by looking back at it. I expect to see a crucified and risen Savior when I see him face to face. Both of these predictive prophecies were finished. And so he told his audience, you are of the company of the righteous one. You belong to him. You are of that coming one who has come. And you are those who persevere to the saving of your souls, or in the case of the recipients of the letter of Hebrews, because of the impending catastrophe of A.D. 70, their faith or their participation in the fidelity of the righteous one would mean the very saving of their lives. They would not be going into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast and to seek Yahweh as if he hadn't come as Yeshua. They will rather come out of Babylon, my people, come out of her. They will come out of Jerusalem and be spared that historical catastrophe, which is the saving of their very lives, which, of course, Mick Jagger sang about when he wrote Gimme Shelter. I caught some of you there. Ooh, a storm is threatening my very life today. Remember that? Gimme, gimme shelter or I'm going to fade away. I like the song, I'm sorry. Coming of faith and the coming of Christ. God has given us shelter, by the way. Give me shelter, answered. Give me shelter, answered. Twice. The coming one, got shelter in him. The righteous one, got shelter in him. Lots of things may threaten our physical lives, but nothing can threaten the life that we have in Christ Jesus. So don't fear those who can destroy the body. It's a false fear. You can't run around life fearing that kind of thing. The coming of faith and the coming of Christ, the seed of Abraham, are one event. Or we could say the apocalypse of God's son, Abraham's singular seed, Galatians 3.16, is also the apocalypse of faithfulness, God's covenant fidelity. And so this is not too far from the opening lines of John's apocalypse. I'll read it to you in John, Revelation 1. I think maybe you should turn there if you got your Bibles. Revelation 1, 1 to 7. You say, I don't need my Bible. I've memorized it. Yeah? In what translation? Well, I've memorized my 
memorized it in the King James Version. Well, then you have memorized the Bible with all the defects of the King James Version. So that doesn't get you anywhere at all. Well, I've memorized it in the New American Standard. Well, that might be a little better, but not much. There are no English translations that don't have defects. So don't glory in your memorization. Maybe I'll just say that. Revelation 1, my translation. You should know that by now. This is my translation. That's not perfect either. Believe it or not. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Please notice that. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves about what must come about speedily. And he made it known by symbols through his angel to his slave, John, who testified of everything that he saw regarding the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Happy is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and who guard the things that are written herein for the time of their fulfillment is upon us. Verse four, John to the seven assemblies in the province of Asia, grace to you and peace from he who is and who always was and who is coming and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful martyr, the firstborn of the dead ones, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his own blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to God, even his Father, to him the glory and the dominion for the ages. Amen. Look. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who impaled him. And all the tribes of the land will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. I want you to see two phrases. Revelation 1.1, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.5, who is the faithful witness or the faithful martyr. The one who is the faithful one is the one who is the righteous one is the one who is the coming one of all these words just note this then the the apocalypse of Jesus Christ the faithful martyr he's called martyr or witness hopistos and martus here because this is written to a group of people many of whom were going to become martyrs and he was the faithful witness the faithful one or martyr or witness and the word is hopistos. Revelation 3.14, Revelation 19.11, compared with John 18.37. Jesus said to Pilate, I have come to bear witness to the truth, to be a martyr to the truth, a bearer of testimony of the truth, the truth that God is, the truth that is embodied in Jesus Christ. So we could say that the apocalypse of Jesus Christ is the apocalypse of the faithfulness that would deliver Israel, the faithfulness that would deliver humanity at large, the faithfulness that would deliver all of creation in toto. I will say that again. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ is the unveiling or the revelation of the faithfulness that would deliver Israel, humanity at large, and all of creation. This is demonstrable, or you can show it documented in John's Apocalypse, and this is demonstrable. It can be documented by an engagement of the texts in Paul's epistles, which are shaping up before our eyes right now and through this series as an apocalyptic vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. That's the message. His universally saving impact, which we will call instauration. So the coetaneity of Jesus Christ and faithfulness, the coming of Jesus Christ and faithfulness, is also strikingly evident in Galatians 2.20, where Paul speaks of having been crucified with Christ. He speaks of Christ living in him. And he speaks of himself living by the faithfulness of the Son of God. The faithfulness that came when Christ came continues in the church. The proleptic community which will one day be 
all of humankind. So if you want to repeat John Lennon's song, imagine, I imagine, imagine all the people living by the faithfulness of the Son of God. All people for all times. You want to look up Eric the Red, a Viking in history? You'll find him living by the faithfulness of the Son of God. You want to talk to George Washington and others on Mount Rushmore? You want to talk to Martin Luther King? You want to talk to heroes of the past and history? You'll have a chance to imagine we will all be living by the faithfulness of the Son of God. We will all be loving with the love of Christ, which passes knowing. That'll be quite, I don't know about you, kind of looking forward to that. Galatians 3.24, let's continue. The law then was our confining. J. Lewis Martin, who is very impactful on many other scholars, I'm using his translation at this point, Galatians 3.14. The law then was our confining custodian. This isn't talking about a tutor that's hired by a rich Roman father that tutors the child until he grows up and brings him to school. This is talking about a carceral metaphor. And carceral metaphors are known to Paul. That's C-A-R-C-E-R-A-L, carceral, that has to do with incarceration. Paul knows a little bit about it because he wrote Ephesians from incarceration. He wrote Colossians from incarceration. He knows what it's like to be inside in a small cell. So it's a carceral metaphor. The law then was our confining custodian until Christ came. So until faith came in 323 and until Christ came in 324. Why? Because they are coetaneous events. They are the same event. When Christ came, the fullness of grace and truth came. When Christ came... The covenant fidelity required of Israel in response to the covenant of God was fulfilled in him. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth or unilateral covenant fidelity came by Jesus Christ. And we have all received from his faithfulness, his fullness, his pleroma, even grace after grace. You'll find that grace after grace in John 1.16 correlates splendidly with faith to faith or faithfulness unto faithfulness in Romans 1.17. There's a lot to be tapped in that, and I hope the next generation gets it. If not, God will let me live till I'm 90 or 91 or 106 or something, and I'll do it. But not planning on that. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ is the apocalypse of faithfulness. Galatians 3.24, again, the law then was our confining custodian. He's talking about all the human race. He's not talking about a historical development here. He's talking about the whole human race pictured as a monolithic mass of humanity being under the law. That's Jews and Gentiles both. And... Because the law was taken in hand by the universal power called sin. Sin was over all the human race. And so the law enslaved and cursed all the human race inasmuch as it was taken in hand by sin. And it was weak through flesh. It was weakened through the flesh, which is another suprahuman power that hijacked the law. So the whole human race is pictured under the law and confined by it. Until Christ came so that we could be justified, we'll use the word for now, rectified is better, as J. Lewis Martin says. We could say delivered, liberated, transformed, all the things that happen in salvation, so that we could be justified by faith. But here it says, ekpistios, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Douglas Campbell asked the question toward the end, I think, of the book, The Deliverance of God, which is a spectacular, innovative book for our time. He asked the question, can we see all through Paul every time the faith of Christ is used and every time that word faith is used, it is referring to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ? He thinks so. I think so, but I think there's some exceptions where the faith is simply referring to our personal faith, but only as it has been elicited by the gospel 
and only as it has been gifted to us in our participation with Christ. So, so that we could be justified by faith, that is the faithfulness of Christ. As 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, once you were this kind of person, this kind of person, this kind of person, he lists all the things that are usually egregious and heinous offenses in the eyes of the fundamentalist religious type. And he said, once you were these, but now you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And so he's talking here about the salvation that comes in the name of Jesus, our Lord, or by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, but now that faith, we could say in brackets, I said, that is Christ. Now that faith has come. Christ has come. Same thing. We are no longer under the power of that confining custodian. We are no longer under the power of that confining custodian. That is Torah, which is in turn under the power of sin. And here's verse 26. For you are all, and I think this should be in quotes, the sons of God. Why? And I hardly ever see this referred to in commentaries. But if you go to Hosea 2.1, God says that I will call you who were once not my people, the very sons of the living God, the sons of God. That is God's title for eschatological Israel, Israel in its end manifestation, the sons of God, Hosea 2.1. And that's the LXX 2.1 and 1.10 in some English translations. For you are all the sons of God through diates pistios. Remember Romans 3.30 I showed you a long time ago. You shouldn't remember it because I didn't repeat it enough. But ek pistios is equivalent with diates pistios, where God says, is God a God of the Jews only, or is he not also a God of the Gentiles, of the Gentiles also? So God will justify or deliver and save and rectify the Jews, ek pistios, through faithfulness, and the Gentiles, diates pistios, which means through the same faithfulness. So we have here the same words used, diates pistios and ek pistios. For you're all this, this will all be ironed out in a future exegetical study of Romans and Galatians, I think. For you are all the sons of God through the fidelity, I've translated it, through the fidelity that is in Messiah Jesus, that is the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah, participated in by the Galatians through the faith that the gospel ignited in them. A church just came about by an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That's how salvation comes about, asks all of Tarsus. Paul is announcing here rather shockingly that the Galatian community who had received the promised spirit at the moment of the report of Christ's fidelity called the gospel constituted part of eschatological Israel. This goes back to an original insight that began to develop for us called the Israel of God. Who are they? And who is he, we could say, the Israel of God. Jesus Christ is two things. He is the Israel of God, and he is the God of Israel. And we are in Christ, and in Christ we are Christ corporate. We are the Israel of God, and our God, as Israel, is Jesus Christ. The Lord our God is one, And we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the Israel of God. He says, now, you are all the sons of God. He's talking here to a primarily pagan Gentile church. Through the fidelity, that's dia tes pistios, which means the faithfulness of Christ. Because God is one and the same. And he says, I am that I am. God is one and the same who delivers the circumcision, ek pistios, through the faithfulness of Christ. And the Gentiles, the uncircumcision, dia pistios, through the same faithfulness. So both Gentiles and Jews needed to be delivered by the same faithfulness because they were under the same law, under the custodianship of the same law. The law wasn't just over the Jews. The law was an enslaving power 
to Jews and Gentiles to the entire monolith of the human race until Christ came. And he's the great liberator. What does it say? He will set the prisoners free. He will set the captives free. He led captivity captive. Especially the rebels, it says. I love that. Especially the rebels. Especially those that impaled him. The grace of God is more accentuated when it's demonstrated toward most egregious offenders. Hope you understand that. If you don't, you're religious and you got a problem, a big one. You got a big problem. You got the wrong kind of religion. And it's possible that you are ruled by a subterranean ocean of self-righteous arrogance. But I won't, I'm not going to rebuke you or anything. But here we have it. Paul is announcing here, again, rather shockingly. And almost everything Paul says has shock value to it. That at, and what has to happen now is we have to recapture the Pauline epistles in their original shock value by putting ourselves in the seats of the original hearers of the letters, the Galatians here. I'm sure there were people that might have even been fainting. And some of them might have been the teachers that Paul was rebuking. He's announcing shockingly that the Galatian community who had received the promised spirit, not by doing the works of the law, but at the moment they heard of the faithfulness of Christ in the gospel, when they received that spirit, they constituted eschatological Israel without having to be circumcised, without having to keep a kosher table, without having to fulfill any of the law's demands. Why? What identifies them? And again, this is where I want this to be emphasized and those who carry the torch of this gospel to emphasize. The, there is right here, we have to spot an allusion to Hosea 2.1. And in the Hebrew text, it's B'nai El-K. In the Greek, of course, it's Huios to Theu, sons of God. What identifies them as the eschatological sons of God, the Israel of God, is their very possession of the spirit. As Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to fulfill my ordinances. And those ordinances come down to love. What constitutes them as such is not circumcision, but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The minor surgery called circumcision, which brings about a cut in the flesh, is nothing. It's nothing. The removal of the foreskin or the non-removal of it or the attempted undoing of that operation is nothing. Believe it or not, there were men for their own political advantage, once circumcised, tried to undo it in a very painful operation. It's nothing. I'm sure it feels like something when it's going, you're going through it, but it's not, it doesn't mean, it has no connotation, has no, there's no, it has no portfolio in God's plan. Circumcision, the minor surgery, takes a second or two, or uncircumcision, doesn't have, neither one of them means anything. What is really something is a new creation brought about by two divine missions at the heart of which is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in Revelation, the lamb who was killed and who stands up from the dead and who is enthroned is called the lamp of the new creation. He lights up the whole new creation. The whole new creation is lit up by a lamp called the lamb. That's the whole insight of that new creation. It's the lamp or the light that illumines the new heavens and the new earth and the heavenly new Jerusalem. Jesus Christ, therefore, is the bearer of human destiny. He was slaughtered. He is standing. He bears human destiny. The destiny of all of humanity is eternal life, the life of Jesus Christ. His death was the acquittal of the human race. His resurrection was the justification of all humankind, the setting of us all right in the eyes of God. 
And so when it says in Acts 17 that there's coming a time when Jesus Christ, well, God will judge all of human beings by one Jesus Christ, that means God has a day, he's fixed a day when he will acquit the entire human race by the one Jesus Christ whom he raised from the dead. That means he will acquit the whole human race of sin and of evil by the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection then will be an acquittal for evildoers as well as eternal life for those who have done good or those who have embraced the grace and the gift of righteousness. All these things are unfamiliar to you now. They will be hammered out. We started a little bit on, on Sunday. So that's why we can say, because Jesus Christ is the bearer of human destiny, we can say, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live we share his history and we share his destiny and above all this is where we're going in this text we share his identity we share his destiny we share his history and we share his identity his history is kind of a past identification his destiny is kind of a future identification his identity is a present identification of us all now, see where this is going, because I'm going to iron this over again. This is, you know, when you iron a shirt, I don't, I don't ever do it, but I watch Pam iron it. She goes over it more than once. So I said, that, all of a sudden it dawned on me. That's what I got to do with, you know, doctrine. Got to iron it over again. It doesn't flatten out the first time. Verse 27, for you see. By the way, pray for her. She even irons my jeans. So I have to go out and mess them up, you know, because nobody wants a crease in their jeans, do they? I don't know. Well, anyways. Galatians 3.27. For you see, all who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. They put on his identity. So here's what I, the last thing I want to introduce. It's an introdu- introduction because we're headed toward a doctrine which I'm going to call this man's army. You hear a drill instructor sometimes. I remember my dad saying the drill instructor got up on a big table and he said, I am God. And my dad's like, really? I wondered what you looked like. But, uh, and then the drill instructor said to my dad, where are you from? And my dad said, Vermont. And he said, I thought so. And then they say things like, I didn't know they stacked manure that high in Vermont you know that so you really you're kind of like feeling really good by the end of the day it's called building you up not really but they'll say this is you're in this man's army and this man's army you do this this and this well we're in this man Christ Jesus army now it isn't be all you can be in Adam it's become all you've been made to be in Christ this man's army is the army of the man Christ Jesus. If you've been in other kinds of armies, that's good. That's honorable. That's wonderful. We've spoken about you many times on Memorial Day and Veterans Day, and we always have appreciation for you, but you're in this man's army now. And this is a whole new warfare. It's entirely asymmetric. Your old Adamic nature doesn't know a damn thing about it and does not have the the weaponry for it. The mental toughness that might have taken you through the trenches cannot do a single thing in the apocalyptic eschatological conflict. Can't cut it. It won't cut it. The only thing that will cut it is a superior power, and that power has a name. The spirit of Christ. So baptism is the great explanation. I recently saw a church that said something like Paul. The Baptist church of Paul. And I'm thinking what what hit me is so strange. A Baptist church of Paul. And I thought of Paul who said Christ sent me not to baptize. Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach Christ. Because Paul knew that if he preached Christ, 
And the gospel ignited faith in the listeners that the spirit would baptize them into Christ. So there's the real baptism. Baptism, however, is the great explanation. People say, what do you think of water baptism? I think it's swell. You say, should I be baptized? If you want to be. You say, would you do it? No. Ask your husband to do it. Ask your wife to do it. Ask a friend to do it. Do it in front of witnesses. Do it. If you feel the urge to do it, do it. Christ sent me not to baptize. He didn't send me to Pittsburgh to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. Now, if I was sent to baptize, we'd have to take a day off in the summer, and we'd have to buy all these robes, two kinds, one for you to get all wet with, and then one for you to put on afterwards to show that you're clothed now with Christ. And you say, well, I want to do that. Go ahead. Will you be there? No, I'll be studying. But baptism is the great explanation. It does not say here all who were baptized in water, but all who were baptized into Christ. Can a person be baptized in water, but not baptized into Christ? Yes. Can a person be baptized in Christ and be baptized in Christ? Yes. Can a person be baptized into Christ and be truly baptized? Yes. Can someone be baptized in water and not be baptized in Christ? Yes. Happens all the time. People depend on the water baptism like people depended on a minor surgery called circumcision. It ain't nothing. But baptism is the great explanation. It does not say all who are baptized in water have clothed themselves with Christ. It says all who are baptized into Christ and the spirit performs that action. It's a divine action. The spirit performs that action. There is one spirit. There is one baptism. And the one baptism is the spirit baptism. For you have all been baptized by one spirit into Christ. And there is no Jew versus Greek, male versus female, slave versus free person, Scythian versus barbarian or bond or free. But listen carefully. That again is the spirit's work. It's part of divine mission too which is a continuation and an application of divine mission one. The Spirit's baptism of people into Christ is a vital part of the second divine mission, which is that of the Spirit. But water baptism illustrates in very visible terms what's gone on here. The baptized are immersed in water to show that they died with Christ and were grafted onto the downward trajectory of Christ into death. They emerge from the water to show that they have arisen with him. Now, I was baptized in a pond up in northern Vermont, and I, I wanted to be baptized, and I was baptized. See, again, I'm not saying you shouldn't be water baptized. How many, I'm just curious. How many believers here have been water baptized? So... We'd have to be Anabaptists again to get you baptized. It means again baptized. So, I'm, I, but if you aren't, if you have not been water baptized and you want to be water baptized, maybe I'll ask some of the men in the ministry or women in the ministry to volunteer to baptize you. You can have a baptism. So, if you want to and you have the urge to, do it. Do it, because it's an illustration, but that's all it is. The baptized are immersed in water to show that they died with Christ. They emerge from the water to show that they have arisen with him. They have been, in the words of Doug Campbell, grafted on to the twofold trajectory of Jesus, the downward and the upward trajectory. Put them both together, and you have victory, the V-shaped victory. After the baptism... 
then, traditionally, especially in the early church, the baptized put on new, clean clothes. Sometimes a white, dry robe they put on. And this symbolizes two things. It still symbolizes it to us. It symbolizes two things. One, they have put on Christ. They are now shares of his identity. Two, they have put on the armor of God for combat in the apocalyptic eschatological war. They have put on the armor of God for combat in the eschatological apocalyptic war in which the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Not you against the flesh. You walking in the spirit who wars against the flesh. And for the flesh impulsively desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Says Galatians 5.17. So if you don't pay attention to either one, the impulsive desire of the flesh or the direction of the Holy Spirit, you're just in a standoff. You're in suspended animation. You're a miserable Christian saying, this is a miserable place to be. You're in a suspended animation doing nothing, hovering. It's a sad state of affairs. It's a state of affairs that partially is revealed in Romans chapter 7, which isn't Paul before salvation or Paul after salvation or Paul at all, but Paul in the voice of a hypothetical speaker under Torah. So, In closing then, Peter puts it more explicitly in military terms, saying the impulsive desires of the flesh make war, stratuontai, make war, kata, against the soul. The impulsive desire of the flesh makes war against the soul. That's the addiction that destroys more than the body, but the soul. The impulsive desire of the flesh, you cannot control it. And I'm going to have one more psychological application before we close tonight. The soul cannot successfully combat these desires. The soul cannot successfully combat these desires but only sublimates, that's the psychological term, at best, sublimates. The soul sublimates. To sublimate is to divert the energy. This is American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition. To sublimate is, quote, to divert the energy associated with an acceptable impulse or drive or an unacceptable impulse or drive Into an acceptable activity. So the flesh says, okay, I know it's wrong to be addicted to sex and pornography. And that's killing me. So what I'll do is I'll redirect that energy into becoming a workaholic. Because that would be socially acceptable to people. If I work myself to death and neglect my family that way. So it sublimates, you try to sublimate, that's the best the soul can do against the impulsive desires of the flesh. It goes from one unacceptable addiction and then it forces its direction in another direction that's an acceptable social direction, but it's not, it's still ungodliness, it's still not God, it's still not the Christian faith, it's still not deliverance and transformation. So, Sublimation of the impulsive desire of the flesh is not victory over that impulse. It's merely a redirection of it. Only the spirit, and I'm speaking of God, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the son can successfully combat and keep overcoming the impulsive power of the flesh. And this is the essential principle of pneumatology where we go from Christology to pneumatology, which isn't a departure from Christology, but an intensification of it. This is an essential principle of pneumatology. It is an essential element of the Christian spiritual life. 
and of eschatological apocalyptic combat. Pastors and teachers have to teach the saints how to buck up and how to conduct themselves in the eschatological apocalyptic combat. When Paul urges in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with reference to its desires, he is saying, in effect, be what you have become through baptism into Christ. In this man's army, I'm speaking of the army of the man Christ Jesus, it is not be all you can be, but be what you have become in Christ and by the Spirit. So, Father, we thank you for this operation of explanation of the scriptures tonight, which involves some reproof, some correction from instruction and in righteousness that the persons who hear it can be matured and brought to every kind of noble production. We're grateful for this in Christ's name. We thank you for the privilege of 